Why don't we open up in our Bibles to the book of Ruth. That's where we're at. If you guys are new here, I want to welcome you. Uh, we are kind of in a series right in the middle of this great book called the book of Ruth. So uh, what I want to do is I'm going to pray, um, and then we're going to get into this great book. Let's pray. God, we just uh, come to you right now. We ask you for your help. We need your wisdom. We need your counsel. We need your guidance. Because, Lord, for us... Um, Apart from your Holy Spirit speaking to us, all this is is a lecture, and all this book is to us is nothing more than a textbook. And God, what we don't want is for this book to be a mere textbook, and what we don't want is just to be a lecture. God, we want your Holy Spirit to move. We want to see words come to life that bring transformation. God, that raises the affections of our hearts to worship you, to love you. So God, we ask you right now that you would just give us the strength that we need to be able to uh, understand your word in a way that changes us. And so we just commit this morning in your hands and we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Um, what we're going to be doing this morning is we are in Ruth chapter 2. We've been through a series in the book of Ruth and before we jump in, I want to get you up to speed if you're kind of one of our new guests uh, here checking things out. I'll very quickly kind of catch you up to speed with this great story of Ruth. Uh, it's one of these very small books in the Old Testament. It's only four chapters. Um, a lot of people know about it. And what makes the story of Ruth so good and why it makes it one of those stories that people want to hear over and over and over again is because of the redemptive quality of it. Meaning, it's a story of a lady who has gone through incredibly dark, difficult times and yet through those dark, difficult times, uh, her whole entire life becomes really this one of, of redemption, that good things happen to her, through her, uh, not because of something special or unique or great about her, but because she's got a big God who took good care of her. And there's something about these types of stories that really resonate with us as human beings. Um, it's why, like, if you're a guy, uh, you like Lord of the Rings or Star Wars or those types of things because we love these big epic tales, or if you're a woman, that's why you like the help or you like stories like Anna Green Gables uh, because you're a woman and you like that type of stuff. And if you're a dude that likes that type of stuff, um, we, we, we'll talk and pray a little bit later, help you through that. But um, at the end of the day, we, there's something about these stories of redemption we really, really identify with and we, we, we relate to and we enjoy. And that's why one of the book, the story, the book of Ruth has, has been in uh, sort of the mainstream of our understanding of good stories. Uh, for so many hundreds and thousands of years is because it has those types of qualities. But what I want you to understand is the story of Ruth is actually a story within a story. And it's a story within God's story. And it's significant um, to us because it actually plays a very major role in the ultimate story of God's story. So with that, I want to give you a very quick, brief uh, rundown as to what's happened. It starts off with a lady by the name of Naomi. Her name means sweetness or pleasant or uh, happiness. And uh, she's married to a guy by the name of Elimelech. His name means my God is, is king. And so uh, they were living in a region called Bethlehem. And uh, Bethlehem literally means house of bread. And ironically, there was famine uh, within the house of bread. And so Elimelech uh, led his wife, Naomi, and their two sons, Malon and Kilion, which uh, basically means, translates those two names, uh, sickly and pining, not good names. It'd be like if you named your kid hepatitis C and the other one cancer. You just don't name kids those. And uh, so they move off into another region, uh, a place called Moab. And Moab was an area that God actually forbid the people of Israel to have any dealings with, uh, not because 
so much as them being bad people, but because they worship bad gods, false gods that enslaved the people. They worship a god by the name of Chemosh. And so uh, the reason why they moved out of the region of Bethlehem uh, was strictly financial. Um, because what had happened, because there was House of Bread in there, um, Elimelech saw opportunity in another area that was completely godless. Uh, Elimelech made the mistake that sometimes some men make, that rather than looking for the welfare and the well-being of their family, trying to ask the questions, where's a good church? How can my kids uh, meet good godly people so that they can grow in righteousness and how to move into a new area based upon a lot of other factors instead of just simply it being solely financial, Elimelech made simply a financial move and as a result, his family paid for it dearly. And in the process, their two sons, Malon and Kilion, married two Moabite women uh, by the name of Ruth and Orpah. In the process of the storyline, Orpah, uh, uh, Malon and Kilion die and Ruth's husband, uh, Elimelech, dies. So uh, great tragedy and darkness and depression and hardship basically falls onto the lives of these women. And uh, Naomi hears rumor that uh, there's famine back, um, not famine, but there's food now back in the land of um, Bethlehem. And so she begins to move and make her way back into Bethlehem because at this point, there's no reason for her to live in Moab. And as she's walking back, both of her new daughters-in-law or her daughters-in-law are following her back. One of the daughter, daughters-in-law by the name of Orpah turns and goes back. Uh, she realizes that she has a better opportunity at getting remarried, having children by going back to Moab as opposed, as opposed to following Naomi back into the land of Bethlehem. However, Ruth actually has a conversion experience. God changes her life, rescues her, opens her eyes. And it's one of those most beautiful, one of the most beautiful verses in the Bible where here Ruth pulls Naomi aside and says, you know, where you go, I will go. And where you die, I will die. And where you sleep, I will sleep. And your people will be my people. And your God will be my God. And, and it was because she had met God. And her life was changed. And so she realizes she wants to follow Naomi. And in spite of the pain and the hardship that Naomi has fallen into, Ruth is committed to Naomi as her mother-in-law. But probably so much because she's even more committed to her God. So when they come back in the land of Bethlehem, you have two women that for the most part, have lost everything. They have no husband. There's no male in their life in that culture to be a female without any male influence in your life, whether it be an older brother, a dad, a great uncle, somebody who had some sort of male authority or power within your life. You basically were rendered uh, not only invulnerable or vulnerable, but at the same time, you were valueless. No one cared for you. You were in a place where you would find yourself very in a dangerous predicament where you immediately would want to try to figure out some way to get married again if you can. But the strike against Ruth in immediately getting married again is that Ruth has been married for 10 years and she never had a baby. So in that culture that highly values having children, uh, predominantly having male children, here you got Ruth who not only has lost a husband but has never had a baby. So uh, again, in that culture, Ruth would have kind of had these rumors spread about her as to, you know, nobody wants Ruth. She kind of would have been a person that no one would have wanted or desired. She would have been an outcast. So Ruth wakes up in one morning and says, we've got to get food. Because remember, we point out there's two major problems in the book of Ruth. They have to do with food and they have to do with family. And they needed food. They needed to survive. Ruth says, Let's go, I'll go out and go find some food. The writer of the story, narrator, writes the book in such a way that kind of adds this little 
flavor to the text, and it says, and it just so happens to be, or maybe a modern-day English translation might be, just by a strike of luck, uh, Ruth stumbles upon the field of this guy by the name of Boaz. Now, obviously, the narrator does not believe in luck, but does obviously believe in a good type of tension within the story to kind of keep us on our toes to just realize this is not coincidental, that God is actually plotting something. God's moving. God's doing something that's even beyond our comprehension, that God's in, in the plan, in the business of doing something, even though it would seem as if he's not doing anything, or if he is doing anything, he's actually plotting their evil, and that's really not what's happening. That's what the narrator of the story wants us to know, that God is actually plotting for their good. So food gets taken care of, because Ruth comes home that night um, after gleaning, and she comes back with a truckload of food. It'd be equivalent to her going out in the morning, saying, Mom, I'm going to go find some food. So she goes and rummages behind the massive trash cans behind Costco, looking for, you know, half-eaten croissants or stale food or, you know, rotten fruit. And she's looking for some sort of food to come home. And the manager comes walking out and says, what are you doing? She's like, I'm looking for food. And he says, come on in. And he gives her just a truckload, boxes and boxes of all sorts of food, everything you can imagine. She comes home, brings this to Naomi, and Naomi's like, I can't believe this. Where did you get all this food? And then Ruth says something that actually uh, establishes the transition in the entire book. Ruth at that moment says, I was gleaning. I just so happened to come into this field. It was owned by this really nice guy by the name of Boaz. And all of a sudden, Naomi hears this and is blown away because she obviously forgot that she had family in the region. And when she hears the name Boaz, it immediately strikes a chord of hope within her. And that leads us kind of now into the story in verse 20. I'll just read one verse. I'll tell you what we're going to do today. We're going to look at one concept today, and that's it. And the reason why I'm going to just simply zero in on and hone in on one particular concept is because, one, I want you guys to get it. Two, is because it's interwoven throughout the entire book of Ruth. But thirdly, because the book of Ruth is actually in the context of the larger story of God, that the theme or the concept that we're going to be looking at today actually begins in the book of Genesis, is interwoven throughout the entire book, and ends in the book of Revelation. And the word, by the way, that we're going to be looking at, or the concept that we're going to be taking a look at, is really this idea of redeemer, who is uh, Boaz is identified as a redeemer. So I'll read the verse, and then we'll get to work at it. And hopefully uh, it'll make some sense to you, and hopefully at the end you guys will see Jesus through it all. So here's what it says, verse 20. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living and the dead. Naomi said to her, This man is a close relative of ours. He is one of our redeemers. One of our redeemers. Now, with that being said, the word redeemer is very significant because, like I said, it's all throughout the Bible. So I want to try to get a little bit of better understanding as to what a redeemer is, how it plays into the book of Ruth, but again, how the book of Ruth actually plays in a larger context in the storyline of the entire Bible. Now, what you need to know about the Bible is that the Bible, sometimes, in the hands of some people, can be simply reduced as being merely nothing more than just simple an instruction book. It's definitely an instruction book. We're told that all these things that were written aforetime were written for our instruction. The Bible is laws and rules to instruct us and to guide us. It's not less than that, but it is more than that. 
Because the Bible is not just simply a composite of instructions for us to follow. It's also a narrative. It's also a story. It's a true story about God who created all things, who is at work and cares about his creation so much so that he's seeking to bring about a restoration and a redemption of his creation that has taken a horrible downturn. It's the story of God. And this is why the book of Ruth is so important. And these are why the themes of redemption in the book of Ruth are so important. It's because ultimately, they're actually situated within the larger narrative and the storyline of the Bible itself. So let's take a look at a couple things. First and foremost, I want to try to understand two ancient laws. All right? So we, in some ways, we got to tackle some of these ancient laws and ideas. So for some of you, if you're bored, take a nap. I'll wake you up in a five minutes or so when it gets really good. But for the most part, just listen to what we're going to try to look at here. The first of which has to do with what's called the Levite laws. The Levite laws, all right? I'm going to try to explain what these mean to you guys so they make sense. The Levite laws. The word Levite literally comes from the Latin, which means levir or brother-in-law. Basically, it has to do like this. And by the way, this law is actually found in Deuteronomy 25. And it has to do with uh, God actually setting up a situation or a system. So let's say, for example, you're married. All right, say you're a guy, you're married, and uh, you've got two other brothers. All right, and while you're married um, to your wife, you never had a child with your wife. For whatever reason, you're too busy, whatever the situations where you just were never able to get and have a baby. All right, and let's say you die. Now, God actually set up a situation where now he created a program or a system so that one of your brothers uh, would carry on your name. Because if you died and you never had a baby and you live in a male-dominated society where they highly value men, the way that you carry on your family name or your lineage is by having a son. All right? You carry on the son's name or you carry on the name of your son or your family name through the lineage that is going to continue to go on and on. So having children... Uh, in particular, having men uh, was very important, not just because, you know, there's something unique about men other than the fact that men obviously were able to carry on the family name. So if you were, were married and never had a son and you died, that would mean that now your name would die with it. But God created a way so that, in a sense, your name could be resurrected. You could live on. And God created this system called the Levite Laws, And again, I said it's found in Deuteronomy chapter 25, where if you had a brother, what your brother can do is he can take this obligation. Now, he doesn't have to do it, but he can take the obligation to himself, whereby he can pull your, you know, your surviving widowed wife aside and say, I'd like to help out, and I'd like to carry on my brother's name. I want to marry you. We'll have a child, and the child that we have doesn't belong to me. It belongs to my dead brother. I'll give the child back to you. His name will continue to carry on. And so that firstborn son now goes back to the dead son, the dead brother. Is all this making sense to you? I heard crickets. Okay. So the point of the matter is, is that God actually cares about the living and the dead. God created the system so that the dead brother can have his name to continue to live on in some way by having his family name redeemed. All right. So that was called the law of of the Leverites. Now, the reason why that's significant is because there are three times in the entire Bible that this idea of the Leverite law actually comes into play. It comes into play in Genesis chapter 38. I'm not going to go into the story of it. If you want to check it out, you can read it yourself. It also comes into play, again, like in the verse I just read or re- referenced in Deuteronomy 25. 
But some scholars and theologians actually believe that it also comes into play in the book of Ruth. We're here, uh, this guy Boaz, a kinsman redeemer, rises up and some believe he's actually going to perform the Leverite vow or the Leverite law. That he's actually going to take one of his distant relatives who died and restore and redeem the family name to carry on the family lineage. Now, a lot of scholars have actually debated this, and I'll tell you very quickly, theologically, for those of you that are theological nitpicks like myself and geeks like myself, that basically this has been a long-standing argument as to, you know, is this actually a Levite marriage or not? I'll tell you, the major consensus usually comes to that, no, this is not actually a legitimate Levite marriage. Anybody want to guess why this is not a legitimate Levite marriage? It's not his brother, but um, it doesn't have to be a brother. It can be a relative. So even if it's a distant relative, someone says something else. Moabite. You, get, you got it. All right. Most scholars actually believe because Ruth was a Moabite, meaning she was a foreigner. She was an outsider. She didn't belong to the people of Israel. So therefore, uh, there was no obligation whatsoever for Boaz to actually perform the Levite laws in order to bring her back into the family line to carry on a son, to carry on the lineage, the name, because she was a Moabite, which actually adds a little bit of an intrigue to the story because if that's true, we know the end of the story is that Boaz actually does end up marrying her, does end up performing the, the, the right um, of marrying her and bringing the son back in. At the very end of the story, in chapter four, we're told that the baby is actually brought to Naomi, given to Naomi, and says, this is your son. It's absolutely amazing. So really, at the end of the day, uh, what we see here, if this is the case, that Boaz is a man of such upstanding character that even though the letter of the law says, you don't need to do it, Boaz says, but the spirit of the law says, go to the outcast, go to the foreigner, go to the wounded, the hurting, those people that don't belong, and bring them in. It's amazing. Like, Boaz is a man of such upright character. He's not bound by the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law is in the heart and at work in the lives of a guy like Moab, or in the, in the lives of a guy like Boaz, even in the midst of a season that we know uh, is what's typically called uh, the time of the judges, and it was a very dark, difficult time for the people of Israel. So that's the ancient Levite marriage laws. The second thing I want to take a look at is the main one, is this idea of the kinsman redeemer. The Hebrew word for this is goel, and it's basically found throughout the entire Bible. I'm going to try to break this down for you. Kinsman redeemer. It's not as difficult as it sounds. Again, for some of you, it might be a brand new word, brand new phrase. Uh, let's first of all tackle kinsman. What does kinsman mean? Kin? What does kin mean? He's my kin? Brother, relative, right? So kinsman, someone who uh, is a, a relative, part of the family member. They belong to your family. They could be a brother. They could be a, an uncle. It could be a distant uncle, a distant cousin. They're in the family line. That's what a kinsman is. Now, a redeemer is somebody that buys back something, right? So a kinsman redeemer is somebody that buys back something that happens to be in the family. So the reality is, is God, God's going to basically lay down some rules and say, in order for a kinsman redeemer to actually be able to perform his function, a kinsman being who he is, meaning he's part of family, a redeemer being what he does or his actions, God says, I'm going to lay down some rules whereby a kinsman redeemer would operate and ways in which he would operate. There are three areas in which God lays down for a kinsman redeemer to operate. The first of which, God provides a way for the land to be redeemed. All right, So if a kinsman redeemer were to come onto the scene, 
a kinsman redeemer has the opportunity, the option of being able to restore and buy back property or things that were lost. So let's, let's try to get a little bit further into this and try to understand this, and I'll wake you up in a second here. But the first thing is, has to do with land, all right? I'll actually alliterate this for you at no extra cost, all right? Three L's, the first of which God says I care about are land, lineage, and life. God says the kinsman redeemer will be the one, will be the person who's actually responsible for redeeming back or restoring land, lineage, and life. Let's first of all deal with land. Okay, back in the day, you know, of the judges, back in the day of the first century, land was very important. Land was what you, uh, you built your houses on. Land was what you grew your crops on. It was a very agrarian culture. That was how you would make your food. That's how you would raise your livestock. It's very important to have land. In fact, when you died or when you were about to die, you would write up in your will and you would give your land to your son. And then you would hope that one day when your son is about to die, he would then give his land proportionate proportionately to his sons. And the land would stay in the family for generation after generation after generation. That was the way that God had actually set this thing up. But the problem is, just like today, that let's say you own a piece of land and you fall upon hard times and you gotta sell your land. I knew a lot of people several years ago bought a house back when everything was really good and then when things got really bad, they actually had to walk away from the house and they have no more house. They were not able to actually keep the house or anything that was invested in the house. All of it was lost. Well, back in the day, thousands of years ago, God established a law that said if you have a house or if you have land and you fall upon bad times or hard times and you are forced to walk away from it, I want to create a way whereby you can actually get that land back. And the way in which God said that you can get the land back was basically by three ways. All right, The first way was, let's say you lost the land and the next day, you go out, and you buy a scratcher, and all of a sudden, you win the lottery, all right? You become an instant millionaire. You could now go back and buy the land back yourself. It's a good job, all right? You try your hand at poker. You do a really good job. You get a lot of money. You can use that money, and you redeem the land back. It's, that's, a, that's a legitimate way. The second way, God says, is through a kinsman redeemer. This is a relative. This is kind of like having a rich uncle, right? You lost land. You know uncle's really rich. He lives in New York City. He owns a lot of stock in Apple, and everything's going really good. You can call him up and be like, I'm going to lose the farm, all right? We won't have goats anymore, and everything's going down the tubes. Can you help us out? Rich uncle says, I'm happy to give you some money, and the way they got set it up was he can give the money with no um, surcharges, with no interest. He, he can give the money, and then the money then can now be used to go buy back the farm. All right? Now, that's the second way, the kinsman redeemer. The third way is through what's called the year of jubilee. This is just, this is just an arbitrary. Every uh, several years, God created the system so that what would happen is that in the year of jubilee, everybody gets their land back. Everybody. It doesn't matter who you are. If you sold it, if you lost it, if you fell upon hard times, God just says in the year of jubilee, it'll all be given back to you. You know why God says all this? At the end of the day, God says, the reason why I'm making these rules over the land is because none of you own the land. You think you own the land. God says, the land belongs to me. I own it. And I give it to you to steward. You don't own it. You think you own it. You might hold the title deed to it. It doesn't belong to you. And so therefore, if you're going to be going through like little business deals in which you lose the land, someone else gains the land, and someone gets prideful and thinks this land belongs to mine, me, God says, no, 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 it all belongs to me all the time, at every moment of every day, 
from now throughout all eternity. And God says, I have the right to claim certain things over the land. And God says, every uh, year of Jubilee, I want all the land to go back to the people who originally were given it to. And so that's how you would get the land back. The second thing God says, not only land, but lineage. God actually cares about people. And so what happens is if, say, for example, you have a family member um, or in a family, let's say the dad falls upon hard times, things get really tough, he can't pay his bills, um, and you lose the land, but you also realize that the person to whom you owe the money is so exorbitant, you can't pay it back, so now you have to actually work for the guy. So this was actually sort of a form of slavery where you would go to the landowner or the person that you owe this exorbitant amount of money to and say, I can't pay the bills um, I need to work for you. This is equivalent to you going to a restaurant and not having any money, like pulling out your money and you have nothing, your credit card's void, it's not working, and uh, you're like, what can I do? And they're like, uh, we need dishes washed for the next three hours. You're like, okay. And so you wash dishes for the next three hours. And that's kind of the same idea. God, God says, if for some reason uh, you get sold into slavery because you've got to pay back your debt, God says, I've also made provisions so that those of you that are enslaved meaning something is over you, something is controlling you, something has ownership over you, that is by definition slavery. By the way, uh, slavery can extend not just into social terms, meaning you have a dictator over you. Uh, slavery can also be ideas that you have. If you have certain ideas that govern you, let's say, for example, you live with this mentality that you live off of the affirmation of somebody else. So you just desire so much to receive affirmation from a boss, from a boyfriend, from a girlfriend, from a spouse, from a friend, and this is what you live for, that when you don't have affirmation from them, you feel horrible. You feel as if life is, is not even worth to live, or when that person who you desire to have a high opinion of comes back and they have a low opinion of you, you feel like you're in the midst of hell. That is control. By definition, you are a slave to that other person's opinion. You're a slave. And this is exactly the same types of things. You can have slavery into sin. You can have social slavery. You can have slavery to ideas and concepts and notions. You can have slavery in the form of addictions. Those are the obvious ones, addictions. But what aren't oftentimes the most obvious ones are things in which we have our hearts subjected to all sorts of other things. So God says, I want to set those people free. And I want to create a system that they can be set free. The third of which is God views life as important. So if you have a brother for example, or a sister or someone who gets murdered. God actually created a system in uh, the book of Numbers chapter 35 that there would be one, he was called an avenger. Some of your translations might say avenger, but it's actually the Hebrew word goel, which is the same word, kinsman, redeemer. There would be a person who'd be an avenger. It's kind of like those, uh, like any Steven Seagal movie, all right? Like anyone. I don't care what, I don't care what it is. Everyone's the exact same storyline. His brother gets killed or something happens. It's really, so now the whole point of the movie is, is Steven Seagal is, or, or Van Damme, right? It, the whole movie is always about him trying to go out and avenge the blood of something bad that happened to someone, all right? And, and, and that's, that's the idea. So God says, uh, in the provision of this life, if someone is killed, the murdered, um, there is a kinsman redeemer that will go out, um, chase him down, and avenge the blood of that person, all right? That's also called the kinsman redeemer. All right, there are three different types of qualifications for a redeemer. We'll look at these very quickly. The first qualification is one that he's got to be a kinsman or a relative. This is obvious. We already looked at this. So God says very clearly that in order for a person to be a redeemer, 
um, is in a family to buy back the land, buy back the lineage, buy back a life. Uh, God says they've got to be a relative. They've got to be part of that family line. It can be a brother. It can be a distant relative. It can be a cousin, great uncle, somebody. It's got to be a relative in that sense. Um, so the second thing is God says that he must also be able to pay the price. So if that relative, uh, just because your relative doesn't mean that he's in a position to be a redeemer. Because let's say he's a relative, but he's in jail. He's not going to be able to be a good redeemer because uh, he's in jail. Or let's say if he is a relative, but he has no money, he's broke, he can't be a redeemer. So he's got to also have the ability to be able to redeem. The third thing is he must be willing to pay the price. So there's a sense of willingness or volition. And so God says, um, at the same time, this person needs to be willing. He's, there's got to be a desire. So let me say this real quick. Um, this, these laws of the kinsman redeemer, they were not under obligation to this. It was an issue of honor. It was an honor of the name. Now, God set this up like this because he actually cares about the land. He cares about the lineage, the name, and he cares about life. So God set the system up to protect this, to prolong this, to keep it going. But the way he set it up was that you need a kinsman redeemer in order to be the person to fill, fit the bill and to fill in this role of doing this. He's got to be a relative, he's got to have the means, and he's got to have the desire to do it. So that's basically, in short, what God says, what God lays out as far as this. Now, in the story of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz, this is why the storyline takes this unexpected turn for the better. Like, if this were to be a movie, uh, immediately the moment when Naomi hears that Boaz uh, was the one who Ruth goes to the field, the music would change. Like, something would transition, right? Uh, something would happen. Something would become different in the storyline because immediately hope has sort of entered into the scenario that when Naomi hears that this belongs to Boaz, she immediately begins to realize wait a minute, this is, this is hopeful that maybe we won't go on forever being without a family. Maybe we won't go on forever being without any food, that maybe God actually in the midst of our hardship is actually paving the way, plotting the scene for our blessing. We've been saying this from the very beginning, that this is really the beauty of the story of Ruth, that the narrator takes us in and out of the emotions and the feelings of Naomi and Ruth so that there are moments where we feel her incredible pain but there's also moments where we sense this heightened expectation of hope like maybe God is actually doing something. And the reality is this is what we need to really wrestle with when we think about this type of story because we are all tempted to look at circumstances in our life at this moment of difficulty and hardship or conflict or trials and suffering, and we immediately oftentimes default into the mode of thinking, maybe God really truly does not love me. Maybe God doesn't care for me. Maybe God is not working for my good. Maybe God is actually destructive to me. And we think that. It's almost like we look at the world through this lens, and this lens that we have set up on the side is sort of this ongoing running commentary that's constantly being fueled by the devil saying, no, God doesn't love you, because if he did love you, he would have given you everything you wanted. God really doesn't care about you, because if he did care about you, why would you have gotten that disease? Why would your mom have passed away? Why would you have lost this job? Why would you have lost the house? Why couldn't you be able to pay your mortgage? Why couldn't you get the car you wanted? Why couldn't you graduate from school? And we have this ongoing on-running commentary that's constantly challenging and calling to question God's 
motive, God's heart. And the story of Ruth actually comes back to reinforce to us that in reality, even in the midst of suffering and hardship and trials, God's actually plotting for her good. Is it possible? Is it possible that your life is no different? I mean, is it possible that in the very midst of circumstances you may find yourself in right now, that, that behind what we would identify or call even earlier, like a frowning providence, where it looks as if God is, is not pleased, God is not happy, that behind all of this, God is actually plotting for our good. That's what the story of Ruth wants for us to catch a vision for this, that God actually has a work in which he's trying to establish and work out for his glory and for our joy. That God is actually trying to bring these two together, that our joy would actually be deeply rooted and found in God, and that joy and God's glory are actually not mutually exclusive, but they, they find proper placement in each other. Like two pieces of a puzzle, that God actually wants and intends for our deep joy to be found by bringing him glory. And, and that's where God's working. That's exactly why we look at the book of Ruth and we're like, this is amazing that God actually was plotting for Naomi's joy. How? Because he was behind the scenes doing something so astronomically huge. We just can't even begin to conceive of it. This past week, um, one, of, one of our community groups in our church, um, there are two families, two couples within that community group, and they were both pregnant. Um, both families, and they actually, ironically, actually delivered on the exact same day, and one delivered a, a young, beautiful, healthy child, and simultaneously, another delivered a child that died in the same hospital, a couple doors down from each other, in the same community group, same relationship, same circle, and in the middle of that, the couple that just had delivered a baby, you can imagine how difficult that feels. I mean, you want to be joyful, but at the same time, your good friends just lost a child, something so dear, something that took nine months of planning and preparation and prayer and excitement that just was working up to that. They lost something that you have been gifted with. And, and so they were feeling the sense of like, gosh, how do we, how do we respond? They got a text uh, at some point while they were in the hospital from the couple that had just lost their baby and says, listen, I, I just, I want, I want you to know that my wife and I are so happy for you and we want you to feel joy in spite of our loss. So the reality is, is like, like how, how can somebody who's lost a child, something for which a good friend of yours has just had a child and they're in their arms being able to celebrate and enjoy that incredible gift while you have had that incredible gift taken away from you and you're at a loss how can someone like that actually shout blessing upon somebody else even in the midst of insane loss the only way the only way i can see it is if somebody who can say that has a big view of a big god that god somehow is so much bigger than the difficulties and the hardships and the trials, and the suffering, and the pain, and the frowning providences, and all these things that we oftentimes bring together, and just we, we begin to sit in our world, and we kind of let this commentary run in our minds that God is not for us. God doesn't care for us. God doesn't love us. God is against us, because look at what he's done. Look at what he's taken away. Look at what he's kept from you. Look at what he's stolen from you. 
And yet the story of Ruth comes back to us and say, no, really behind the scenes is this God, this very big God that actually is plotting something so big. And perhaps the reason why we don't have all the answers yet and may not ever even get all the answers has to do with our ways just aren't God's ways. We don't understand the mind of God. We don't understand how he's working. But what we can be certain of is that God is doing something behind the scenes. And perhaps it's because we're only in chapter three of a 30-page drama in our own lives. And so the lack of information we have leads us to falsely conclude things about God that just simply aren't true. And perhaps before the day's over even, you might step back and think, how could I have ever thought that about God? Because look what he did in my life. That's, that's the story of Ruth. That's what it teaches us, that this big God is actually doing such an amazing work. This is one of the reasons why the story of Ruth is so intriguing for us. But again, like I said earlier, the book of Ruth needs to be looked as a story or a narrative within the larger narrative. It's a subplot. The book of Ruth, that's all it is. It's a little dramatic subplot in the larger story because we know where the writer of the story is actually going to because the story ends by saying, you know, Ruth had a baby from Boaz and that baby was then given to Naomi and then that child had a, had a son and then that child had a son and the son of that child happened to be the great King David. So you read that and you think, ah, subplot leading to a bigger plot. And we know the story because from King David would come the Messiah. Again, David was a subplot leading to the bigger plot. That God was doing something in the life of Ruth. There's a redemptive purpose that God is working through this. Do you know that throughout the Bible, God is actually identified or called as a redeemer? Do you know that? Throughout the Bible, God is identified as a redeemer. In fact, the very first time the word goel is actually used in the Old Testament is in the book of Genesis, uh, chapter 48. Uh, Jacob, the third son, you know, you got Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob actually refers to God as his redeemer. Listen to how it goes. Uh, If you know something about the story of Jacob's life, he was not always called Jacob. Um, basically, the name Jacob means heel catcher, someone who trips someone up. So imagine, here you are running down a track, and then you have someone who's Jacob, and he kicks your foot and throws your feet out from underneath, and you trip and fall. And while you're on the ground falling, uh, Jacob runs past you and wins the race and like laughs in your face afterwards, all right, uh, because you lost. And that, that's basically what the name Jacob means. Uh, there came a point or climactic point in Jacob's life where we identify and Jacob wrestles with God. And in that kind of, you know, wrestling match with God, Jacob basically taps out and says, all right, it's over. And in that moment, God looks at Jacob and says, I'm not going to call you Jacob anymore. I'm going to change your name. No longer are you Jacob. Your name will be changed from Jacob, heel catcher, to Israel. The word Israel, the name Israel literally means one who's governed by God. God says, you're not somebody that's going to trip other people up to get past them. That's not who you are anymore. I've changed you. You're a different person. You're a miracle. I've changed your heart. I've changed your fundamental disposition. You're not who you once used to be, Jacob. I'm going to call you Israel. You are somebody that is actually governed by me. And this is the beautiful part of the story. And Jacob says this in Genesis chapter 48. It says, and he blessed Joseph and he said, the God who my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life, to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, 
bless the boys and let them and in them let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Now again, you see a little bit of uh, an interesting cultural context here. Again, where Jacob's like, look, let my sons of my son, uh, the grandsons of my son uh, Joseph, continue to live and let the names of my dad and my grandpa Isaac and Abraham be carried on for generation after generation. So you see that concept of carrying on the family name. Jacob says, let their name carry on. He says, the reason why I can even ask that, make that request, because God has been my redeemer. God changed me. He's actually looking at his past of his life, and he says, I'm a, I'm a new person. God, God saved me from who I used to be. I'm not Jacob anymore. I'm, I'm Israel. I'm a different person. And I want this new person to carry on lifelong into the lives of your children, children's children. Second thing is Exodus chapter six, uh, verse six. The other time that this word redemption appears, identifying God, it says, I'm the Lord, uh, and I will bring you out from underneath the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from the slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, with great acts of judgment. It says, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you up out from underneath the burdens of the Egyptians. So here's what God's basically saying, is that I want you to understand that Egypt was a place of slavery for you. It was a place of tyranny. It was a place where you were under oppression. You couldn't free yourself. You can just walk up to Pharaoh and be like, I'm done, can I go now? Like, it just doesn't work that way. That's not how addictions work. You don't just walk up to an addiction and be like, meth, I'm done, later. It just doesn't work that way. Uh, different types of sin and things that we find ourselves, you don't just walk up to the banker you know, for whom you owe like $200,000 on your house and be like, you know what, I don't like debt anymore, I'm done, later, I'm walking out from underneath this and we're, we'll just call it even now, like, you know, you can't do that, you can't walk out from underneath your debts or the things that own you, because they own you. The only way that you can walk out from underneath those things is you gotta have a deliverer. It's the whole storyline of the book of Exodus that God actually poises himself and says, I will be your deliverer and I will deliver you and I will redeem you with my outstretched arm. It's this picture that God says, I will save you, I will restore you, I will take you out from underneath the tyranny of the destruction of Egypt. And when we come to the New Testament, what we begin to see is this theme of redemption continues on all the way through the New Testament. But there's this dilemma. I think the dilemma that kind of probably, I would imagine, maybe came up in the minds of ancient Hebrew writers. Because if indeed God is a redeemer, and if indeed God actually described the precedence of how a redeemer and what the qualifications of a redeemer are, if God says, here's what a redeemer needs to be. He needs to be a, a relative, a redeemer needs to be able to have the means, a redeemer needs to also be willing. If that's the case, it, I would imagine if I was, if I was Jewish hundreds and thousands of years ago trying to understand the Bible, I would have a hard time understanding how is it then can God redeem his people? God's not, God's not a human being. God's not one of us. He doesn't have flesh and bone. He doesn't suffer like us. God can't die like us. How can God, if he's one of our relatives, how can he legitimately be one of our redeemers if he's not one of us? And then you come to the New Testament, and then you begin to realize this concept of redemption is literally interwoven from the very beginning of the story all the way to the very end, where once you begin to see the storyline begin to come to pass, you begin to realize God's solution 
for him being able to be Israel and ultimately the world's redeemer is that he actually does take upon himself human form. He does become a man. He does become one of us. And so we see, first of all, that Jesus was a kinsman. He was a relative. Romans chapter 8, verse 3 says this, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. In other words, that's God's way of saying, Paul's way of saying, that God actually became one of us. This is why it matters that Jesus was born in a, to a virgin in a stable, that literally God became a man, that the infinite God took on finite limitations, that the God who creates all things, owns all things, chose to live in a, in a little stall that animals feed from, that this is our God. God, who is limitless, chose to limit himself by taking upon himself human form. Why? Because God wants to demonstrate how serious he is, that he is the one who not only created us, who not only established the law which identifies righteousness and unrighteousness, but ultimately that God is the one that will also finally restore that which is broken. That God has a plan from start to finish. That God is involved intricately in the lives of you and I. Because that means that everything in your life is not happenstance. Do you believe that? You're not lost in this world. I mean, you may have, through your sins, become separated from God. But at the end of the day, God has created you. He's designed you. He's designed you for himself to have relationship with him, to know him, to know life that comes through him. This is how God created you. That God is actually active at work in these processes in this world to restore things. This is why the writer of Hebrews chapter 2 says this, For since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power over death, that is the, de the devil. And to deliver all those through fear of death were subjected to lifelong slavery. Therefore he had to be made little like his brothers uh, in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. What that basically means, in short, is that it was necessary for God, in order for him to be a good, faithful God, to demonstrate how serious he is about restoring things that, which are broken, including your life. That God says, I will go to the furthest extent, and I will become a man, but I will become a man that ultimately will be crushed, bearing your sins. How does God do this? Again, remember the culture identifies predominantly male or female? Male. If you have a kid, you want to have a boy, firstborn boy. That's, that's, that's the most important thing that you can have. Anybody in the culture, even Greek, Roman, and Jewish, having a male-born son, firstborn, was, was the highest compliment either from the gods or from God, right? If you're a plural you know, pluralist God, believer, or you followed the God of the Bible. It was like the highest honor that you can have to be given firstborn son. And so God takes upon himself even the very language and the concepts and the idiom of the culture. And God says, you want to know how serious I am about 
your redemption, that I will take my son, my firstborn son, and I will sacrifice him for you. God says, you want to know how much you are loved? You want to know how serious I am about your redemption and the redemption of this whole world? I will take that which is of highest value, highest honor to anybody and everybody in the culture, and I will show you that even my son, my firstborn son, whom I love, I will not withhold him for the sake of your redemption. Do you guys know how loved you are? Do you know that you have a God that absolutely loves you, that is in earnest, seeking to bring about restoration to your life? That's our God. That's the God of the Bible. That's the God that's highlighted in the story of Ruth, ultimately in the bigger, broader story of the Bible itself. Secondly, do we see not only that Jesus was a kinsman, we also see that Jesus was also able to pay the price. First Peter tells us, chapter one, that Christ didn't purchase us with silver and gold, but with his own precious blood. So he had the means to be able to purchase us back. Thirdly, we see that Jesus was actually willing to pay the price. He didn't have to, but he was willing to pay the price. God is under, absolutely under no obligation to us in any way. I've said this before. We are not just undeserving. We're ill-deserving. And the distinction is this. Undeserving would be me walking up to you. I've never met you before. You've never done anything to me before. We've never had any dialogue before. And me giving you 50 bucks and saying, go get some lunch. You're like, oh my gosh, I'm undeserving. I don't even know you. Ill-deserving is if I were to walk up to you, give you 50 bucks, you take that 50 bucks, you go buy a gun, and you try to assassinate me, and yet I give you another 50 bucks. That's ill-deserving. You took something that I gave you out of my benevolence, my goodness, my kindness, and you actually use it against me. This is what the Bible identifies, is that we are under no obligation whatsoever from God to receive anything from him, yet God keeps showering blessing, kindness, grace upon grace, upon grace, upon grace, upon all of us, all the time. And there's no obligation. We have no entitlement to it. And it's us who have gotten ourselves trapped into sin. Just why Jesus says those who sin become slaves to sin. We are trapped. We are enslaved by sin because we have chosen to sin. By nature, we do sin. By nature, we do sinful things constantly to ourselves, to our environment, against each other. We sin and we are sinned against. We're in a mess. Our lives are destroyed and broken and yet what we see in the story of redemption in the bible is that god enters into this world and says i have a solution i actually care about this fallen world i care about people i care about life i care about those who are broken i want to redeem i want to restore that's what god wants to do This is the narrative, the story of the Bible. This is why we would actually say, this is good news. This is the story Jesus came and he preached. And it says, and he came preaching the gospel. The story is that God has not forsaken creation, nor has he forsaken you. He's actually at work in your life. You may not see it, may not always be convinced of it, but he is at work. 
And he always has redemptive purposes and processes at work. And we're either in a place where we actually believe that, even though it's hard and painful and we suffer in the midst of it, or we disbelieve that and we choose to actually turn our backs against this God. I want to finish with one final verse. I'm going to have the worship team come on up, and then we're going to sing some songs. But I want you to listen to this last final verse and see how this plays into this whole picture of redemption. It's in the book of uh, Romans. It talks about kind of a day of future glory. It says this. Some of us are probably familiar with it. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that's to be revealed in us. So he's saying that there's going to be a glory that's going to be revealed in us. But he goes on to say, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. So if I understand this passage correctly, what God's saying is that all creation is pretty messed up, it's pretty jacked up, pretty out of whack, things aren't right. Even though we live in this strange world where there's a lot of beauty, at the same time there's a lot of pain. There's a lot of ugliness. Uh, The late Francis Schaeffer used to say, there's something about man in which man has nobility, but at the same time, not only is man full of nobility, but he's also cruel. It's totally true. There's something beautiful about human beings in which the potential of humanity is incredible. I mean, it's just amazing. You see what people are able to do, but at the same time, as human beings, we're very, very cruel. So if I understand this passage, it's basically saying all creation is messed up, and yet creation is actually looking at humanity. It's looking at you and I, and it's saying, look what God did to them, and it's actually lined up saying, we can't wait for God to do for us for all of creation, is what God did for them. That's what he's saying. He said all creation is actually going to follow this pattern that began with people. So what I, what I draw from this is it finishes up here. Verse 22 says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now, and not only creation, but we ourselves, for we who are the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly the adoption of sons and the redemption that word again, the redemption of our bodies. That actually, the story of the Bible is that God actually cares about broken people. God cares about this broken world. So much so that he actually scripts himself into the very narrative himself that he himself wrote. He plays the major role, plays the major part that even though he created all things, he didn't author sin, he didn't author wickedness and evil. We surrendered our wills, not to God, but to the devil, and we brought evil within this world, into this good creation that God created for good, for good purposes. And yet God does not just simply toss the creation off or throw away, throw it away or dispose of it. That's not how God looks at things. I know we live in a culture that's very disposable. Something breaks, we throw it away. That's not how God works. God says, something breaks, I will restore it. And the means and the process by which God has chosen to restore all things is through his son, the kinsman redeemer. That's the process. This is why we love Jesus. Do you know, if you're a Christian, You're a miracle. Do you know that you were rescued? That you are on a path of destruction, the Bible says, that at one point you were, uh, as the Bible describes, 
a son of wrath, of disobedience, that we were on a path of destruction, and yet God rescued us. The way that God rescued us and redeemed us was through his son, Jesus. And that the storyline of the Bible is that God is not going to toss out this earth and toss out people as if he doesn't care about it. But the storyline of the Bible is that God actually cares about people, does care about this earth, and is seeking to bring about restoration. That yes, like Peter says, all the elements will be consumed with a hot, as in a hot fire. But biblically, fire is almost always identified as something that purges and restores and renews and redeems. And that one day God will actually restore this earth back to what it was intended to be. This is why when Jesus came, the word became flesh and not a spirit. Jesus became a man, that there's something about this physical, tangible universe that God says it is good, and he's never changed his opinion on it. What's not good is sin. What's not good is destruction. And this is the story of redemption, that God devised the plan, God enacted the plan, God established the plan, God embodied the plan to restore and redeem all things, beginning with his image bearers that were broken. This is why, if you're a Christian here, people matter. This is why relationships matter. This is why marriages actually matter. Marriages are intended by God to reflect his beauty, that disposable marriages, just throwing them off the way the culture teaches us and trains us and identifies that we should just act. It, it's, it's not redemptive. It's not how God intends. People matter. This is why works and actions of social justice having to do with trying to dig wells and bring water to people that are thirsty and starving and dying actually matter. That, that matters to God. That's why trying to take care of the issue of human trafficking actually matters to God. It should matter to us. God's a redeemer. These are souls, these are human beings, these are people that are made in image of God that God seeks to restore and redeem. It all matters to God. We're going to sing, we're going to worship, but I want to invite you into something. Because Christianity is not just simply a list of do's and don'ts of things, laws, rules, regulations. It's not less than that, but it's far more than that. It's a story. And a story is something that welcomes you in, invites you in. That if you look at your life and you think, I'm not redeemed. My life is broken. It's not fixed. You're tempted to look at your life and think it's irreparable. I want to tell you, it's not irreparable. There's hope. Jesus can restore. He can redeem. If you're a Christian and all that you've been experiencing living in the Christian life is just going to church, doing some sort of Christian stuff, and just somehow living in some sort of a system that's lifeless, I want to welcome you into something far deeper, into a, into a world in which God actually cares about to be a part of a redemptive work that Jesus describes as his mission, that God actually invites us to be part of his mission. I want to invite you to be part of that. We're going to sing, we'll worship, we'll partake of communion. If you're here today, you don't know Jesus, I encourage you, ask God to wash you and cleanse you, to bring you into his, his redemptive work. If you're a Christian, ask God how he wants to use you and your life in redemptive ways in your family, 
in your workplaces, maybe in your dorms, in your classrooms, wherever God calls you, in your neighborhood, for his glory, for his purposes, because people matter to him. This earth matters to God. That's why he created rules and laws, and it all comes as a result that God became flesh, dwelt among us, we beheld his beauty in the face of Jesus. This is why we love Jesus. This is why we're going to sing to Jesus. Let's sing, let's worship, let's confess sin, let's partake of communion together.